This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 96. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jerry Fergon, founder and CIO of Taylor Fergon Capital Management. At the beginning of September, when we recorded this interview, mainstream media outlets have been discussing the effect trade wars, interest rates, and all sorts of potential catalysts for downturns in the market. I thought it would be important to discuss investing strategies in the event of downturns in the market. I was introduced to Jerry Fergon very recently and thought he would provide some interesting takes on current market conditions, how he and his firm would tackle downturns in the market, and to learn more about Taylor Forgotten Capital Management's investment philosophy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 96, and please enjoy my interview with Jerry Forgotten. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. As some of you may know, when I'm not interviewing folks for the podcast, I also host CEO video interviews and Wall Street Views with investing experts for SNN's YouTube channel, SNN Network. I wanted to take a moment to invite you all to subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel. As a subscriber, you'll be the first to be notified when we publish a new CEO video interview with microcap management teams, a new Wall Street View video interview with investing experts, panels and keynote presentations from our conferences, as well as new and archived podcast interviews. Go to www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click the subscribe button. Again, that's www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click subscribe. Thank you for subscribing and for your continued support. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I would like to welcome Jerry Fergon, founder and CIO of Taylor Fergon Capital Management. Jerry, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on and, and thank you again for joining me. So uh, to start off, let's get your background. You know, How and why did you start investing in the stock market in general? Well, I've been at this for 34 years. I spent uh, 21 years uh, with a large Wall Street firm, actually Merrill Lynch in San Francisco, um, and really kind of cut my teeth in the on the retail side of the business. But had very early into my process of of doing that, realized that I wanted to be an asset manager. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate to have married a woman whose father was an asset manager, uh, Dick Taylor, who's now is one of the namesakes in our firm, Taylor for Gone. Um, and really, I kind of I tell the story that it took him about five years to, 
to really re- figure out what I had done because my wife is the youngest of six, um, five girls. So uh, he, he had his hands full there. Um, and uh, nonetheless, um, once he finally figured out what I did, uh, it didn't take long for us to become fast friends and frankly, for him to become my mentor in the business. So uh, a good, you know, 15 of the years that I was in on the on the well in in the Wall Street firm, if you will, um, you know, he was really mentoring me on on asset management, how it worked, the whole concept of what we call that growth stock theory of investing that he learned from his days back in the '60s, working side by side with Thomas Rowe Price back in Baltimore. Um, my wife is originally from Annapolis, Maryland, and so you know, from that, I just. Uh, you know, built on, you know, what I had learned from, from Dick, unfortunately he passed away in 2004. So it was actually not even ever a part of our, our firm because we didn't start Taylor for Gone until 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, that's the origins of my investment or my, my investment background. And, you know, the, the reason why I ended up getting into investing in growth companies. So uh, even before entering the, the main, you know, going to Wall Street firm, going to Merrill Lynch, you know, did you have an interest in investing prior to that or did you study in college? You know, I, I always find that everybody, usually everybody I interview sometimes has that, that story where, you know, they're either their parents pulled that, that one can off the, off the, when they're at the, the, at the market and they said, Oh, look, this is a public company. I invest in this one. And Oh, mom, what's investing? So, I mean, you, I, I'm, I'm just assuming you must have one of those stories. Uh, you know, actually, uh, I really didn't. I, I <laughs> didn't have a ton of money growing up. My family was not uh, endowed with lots of money. And so, um, frankly, and I was uh, I went to UC Santa Barbara as an economics major. So I was very interested um, in in economics and business. Um, and, and I think early on did know that I wanted to get involved in in working with with other people and their money, probably because I didn't have <laughs> that much of my own. Um, so it, it was really more of a, a means to an end. In other words, I knew that that could be, you know, this, this is the mid 80s, right? So it was kind of popular to be in the financial world at that point in time. I, I did love economics. I thought it was particularly, you know, interesting. And I was, um, you know, I, I enjoyed my time learning about it. But I can't say there was any one particular, you know, stock picking event in my in my past or before I got into this business or even before I got into, you know, studying economics at, at UC Santa Barbara that, um, you know, that led me to this. It was more, um, you know, I knew that was a way that you could do well. And um, I, somebody said to me, if you want to make money, manage other people's money. Um, <laughs> so I, thought, I kind of took that as, okay, well, maybe that's a way that, that I can, can find some level of success out there in the world. Um, you know, one thing led to another and, uh, you know, and here we are. I was actually a baseball player in college. So frankly, going into college, probably my my bigger interest was, you know, I want to play pro baseball. So um, that didn't happen. But uh, nonetheless, uh, here we are today doing doing what we're doing. Cool. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, uh, I feel like we almost had similar paths. I, I went to UCSD and I was recru- okay. I was recruited to play ball there. And then I, one thing led to another. I ended up not because they, you know, it was – time commitment was a little too much, but, uh, yeah, no, I had a very sim, I had a very similar thing to you. My dad was on wall street for years. So I, I kind of got inspired to want to be in it eventually from, from that. But, uh, you know, I had a very similar mindset of baseball and, uh, and school at the time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you alluded to this at the beginning, you know, what then eventually led to your founder, you know, what, what inspired you then to take, to go from Merrill Lynch and, and from the, you know, working in a firm to starting your own shop? Yeah. You know, I, I, I mentioned to you before we got on the podcast that I, I, I kind of regret not having started this earlier. Um, you know, the business was evolving and changing quite a bit, uh, even by the mid eighties with respect to, you know, what was formerly the quote unquote stock brokerage world, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you got paid a commission to, to pitch stocks to people, um, that never appealed to me. Um, you know, I always c- kind of thought that was, you know, somewhat, and I hate to say this because it sounds terrible in some ways, because there definitely were some great old stockbrokers out there that really were asset managers. But you know, it had this negative connotation about it, and, and this the whole the whole concept of churning. And you know, I think that that was probably over overdone as to you know how rampant it was. I don't think you know it's like anything. You know, ninety nine percent of the people out there are doing things honestly and trying to help people make money. Uh, you know, there's a few bad apples out there that kind of ruin it for everybody. But nonetheless, I, I, I kind of like that idea of, you know, let's get paid a, a, an asset management fee, or, you know, a, based on the assets and have it not be related to the transaction. And then you could just kind of focus more on on buying businesses and and uh, and not be so worried about, well, geez, I got to generate, you know, the way I generate you know, income is to generate transactions. So that appealed to me pretty early on. And the business was going through kind of that transition to that kind of asset-based fee, um, even in the retail brokerage world at that point. Um, And so, you know, I got more involved in that, but then realized, you know, one of the things that Wall Street, the the big Wall Street firms did at that time, and they're really still doing today, and it's, I I would suggest that it's most of the business today is, um, you know, they wanted you to raise money. They wanted you to open accounts. They didn't want you to manage money. And that always didn't sit well with me. Uh, I always felt that, you know, okay, so there's this line, you know, you go find the money and you open the accounts and then turn the money over to the professionals to manage. And I thought, well, geez, you know, am I not a professional? I guess, I guess, you know, I'm an amateur of some kind, you know, that just didn't sit well. And so, you know, I, I never stopped with kind of educating myself and trying to learn how to, how to pick companies, how to manage, manage money in the context of, of a portfolio, um, and then just the pure, you know, perfection, if you will, of, of marrying into a family that uh, was an asset management family. And Dick spent, uh, you know, the mo- most of his time in the 60s and 70s at Rowe Price and learning from a master, um, you know, who really was, I think, one of the best investors ever. You know, he didn't write a book like, uh, you know, Graham and Dodd and, and put all of his um, – you know, ways of doing things into, you know, a highly published or highly, you know, um, distributed type of form. Um, we do actually have an old memo that he put out um, called the growth stock theory of investing. Um, that was really his sort of treatise on how to go about looking for great companies. Um, but it wasn't something that was, it, it was never turned into a book of any kind. So, um, you know, that, you know, learning from Dick and 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 from his experiences back when when Roe Price was, you know, really fairly young, you know young in their growth stage uh, back in the 60s and 70s, um, was really something that was you know amazing. And and 
uh, to this day, I'm so thankful that I was able to have have that experience. And you know, we we really are trying to carry it on here today at Taylor for Gone, just kind of you know carrying that torch forward and and delivering the same kind of really what is pretty simplistic type of portfolio management. Mm-hmm. Well, Jerry, I look forward to reading that book when you do decide to write it uh, at, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so let's so let's dig in then. You know, um, I, I'm sure we could we could do some anecdotes all day, every day, talking about you know your experience with with your mentor and and Mr. Taylor's experience also with, with Mr. Rowe or Mr. Price, excuse me. You know, but um, I, I really want to know. You know, what what would you what is the classic growth theory of investing? Um, you kind of answered why you decided to use this theory as, as the basis for your investment philosophy. So let's dig in there. You know, what, what exactly is it? Sure. So T. Rowe Price had a tagline that he'd say, uh, you want to look for well-managed, well-run companies in front of future fields of growth or fertile fields of future growth. Um, sounds very simple. It is. Um and then followed that on with most of the great fortunes in this country have been made by men that held on ownership of companies through multiple market and economic cycles. Um, and, and that's true. If you look at the billionaires out there in the world, you know, most of them were owners of, of businesses that they held for decades. Um, and so that, as simple as that is, it's, it still is to this day what we use as our basic guide to you know, whether or not this is a business we want to invest in. Now, um, you know, that's a common or I'd say a common thread that you get from the the Graham and Dodds and the Buffets of the world is, you know, buy the business, not the stock. And that was for sure an overlap with T. Rowe Price. I mean, he said the same things, you know, don't don't think of trading stocks, think of buying businesses. Um, as, as simple as that is, you know, I don't think that that's practiced hardly at all today. I mean, you know, most of the asset managers that are out there, um, largely not necessarily their own fault, are driven by quarterly performance, quarterly numbers. It's kind of the way the world works as far as who gets the money and who doesn't. And as a result, can be much more trading oriented than is probably healthy. Um, And so that concept of owning businesses through multiple market and economic cycles, I mean, think about that. Um, Most of what you get out there is trying to figure out what's happening in the economy and, and how's that can affect the business that I'm in. Um, and should I sell because the economy is about to go into recession and I'll try and buy back or I'll look for something else that might be more prone to, or, or less prone to being affected by recession. I mean, that's not the way the growth stock theory works at all. You're thinking in terms of these are, you know, themes and, and narratives that are likely to be with us for a very long period of time. And whether the economy goes into recession or whether the market cycles down and has a correction or maybe even a bear market, um, you know, the reality is, is that owning companies through all of that, as long as they still fit that definition of being well-managed and sitting in front of uh, fertile fields of future growth, you're, you're going to be, be, you're gonna be well-served. Got it. All right. So let I want to dig into that point too, is, you know, cause like you said, it sounds, it's very, it sounds very simple and, and often can probably be oversimplified, but let's dig into maybe some of the criteria you look for when you're evaluating a company that potentially could be well-managed and it potentially could be, uh, in, in a, a fertile field of growth, you know? So what, what are some of the criteria for those two key points? 
Well, I, I would say, in fact, one of the ways that maybe we've expounded on that growth stock theory of investing, if you will, and I, I one sort of bone I would pick with with Mr. Price was he, for all the talk of buying the business, he uses the term growth stock theory of investing. I'm going to say growth growth company theory of investing. Mm. Um, and and we uh, kind of an add on that we put into this equation was. Um, venture capital. And, and in fact, in our shop, we actually do run a venture capital partnership as well and often talk about buying public companies with the same sort of view of due diligence that we would make investments in in young venture type companies. Mm-hmm. So what's first that you're looking at? The people, right? I mean, if you talk to most venture capitalists, they will say first and foremost, what they're investing in are the people that are that are you know that have this idea, the entrepreneurs that are that are running that business that have that idea. Um, so we we feel you can take that same. First of all, we 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 actually execute that in our due diligence process with venture capital, um, but we can execute that and take those same tools to the public markets. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, what that's going to end up doing for us is it's going to end up migrating us more towards smaller companies. I hate the whole segmentation of the market that goes on where, well, are you small cap or large cap or mid cap or um, whatever. You know, I don't, I don't even really like the value and the growth differentiation because at the end of the day, don't we find value in everything that we buy or else we wouldn't buy it? Um, or at least that's what we're after. I, I think um, it's, it's really important to make that distinction that if for nothing else, just the law of large numbers um, and the amount of impact that a company can have um, as it gets larger is, is somewhat limited. Um, and so naturally, we're going to be looking for companies that are smaller or if they are larger, they have to be in front of enormous addressable markets. So when you're thinking in terms of, uh, you know, fertile fields of future growth. What, it, well, what does that mean? For us, what it means is a, an addressable market that is large in comparison to what the value of the company is now or what the amount of business the company is doing in that particular market. And actually taking it a step further, what we like even more is if it's a market that doesn't even exist. And they say, well, how do you know how big it is if it doesn't exist? Well, that's part of the magic, obviously, of trying to figure out you know, whether or not the the, the company has merit is, hey, these guys are creating a whole new market that if this works, um, you know, could be enormous in size. Um, so there, you don't always find that, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it can be good enough sometimes to just find somebody that's going after an already existing market that may be growing in and of itself. And, you know, may, perhaps they have a, a, a better way of, of attacking that market and, you know, and, ca- and can take more and more share. Um, it's harder and harder to find companies that are actually creating new markets, but nonetheless, you know, it's it's in that particular you know angle or that that direction that we want to go. Mm-hmm. So not not to pose like a a, dico- <clears throat> a, a, a straight dichotomy in in the options here because there's so many variables, but you know for in in your theory of of investing, if if I'm trying to understand this right, you know, would you be looking at it? Let's say you had two companies, one that uh, was by the traditional Graham Buffett value investing was considered cheap, but may not have had these fertile fields of growth, but they had some continuous growth and, you know, good numbers, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, you have one company there, but let's say you had another company that may not have had the greatest revenues yet, maybe still growing, still trying to capitalize on that potential new fertile market. You know, for you guys, what, what is more interesting in terms of meeting your criteria? I think first off, what I would do is I'd define what I think is the difference between traditional value investing and, and growth investing. Um, the, the way I like to describe it is I, I think traditional value investing is looking at the balance sheet right. where traditional growth investing is looking at the income statement. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you which you might take that a step further and say that the traditional value investing doesn't really even exist today. You know, Dick Taylor used to say all the time that, you know, kind of the LBO phase or craze of the of the 70s and 80s sort of took out all the great value plays and they haven't really existed since. And so what you were left with was value investors who were looking for quote unquote cheap and were were really becoming trading strategies that were trying to pick the bottom of a cycle and 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 buy in and and then sell out at the top of a cycle and now you've got cyclical companies that you're just trading based on pure what you what you perceive to be as 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 value or cheapness or you know it's 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 cheap so I'll buy it mm -hmm. um we're, that is the antithesis of what we're, we're doing. We're looking at the income statement. We're looking at what the income statement could be. So we're far more interested in the company that you described that's more oriented towards revenue, more oriented towards, you know, growing its business. Um, and the earlier, earlier we can find those, the better. Got it. And, and I have to, my quick follow-up too on that is, you know, uh, I always find it interesting that whether it's a large shop, a smaller shop in terms of AUM under management, you know, AUM, it, it seems that there's always so many different ways uh, to find potential new ideas. You know, I mean, what, what's been some of the more successful ways in which your firm has been able to find and capture some new potential ideas uh, to look at? Well, you know, it, it's harder and harder nowadays. We oh, have this sure. kind of saying in our shop that, you know, the 8,000 to 4,000 problem, and those are rough numbers, but that's <laughs> roughly the number of public companies that we've shrunk to over the last, I, I, I'm going to say it's a 21st century problem um, that we're, we're not growing public companies the way we once did. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's harder. Um, you know, we do use the, the database of those 4,000 companies that are out there to try and and uh, you know, munge through. But to be honest, uh, now it's more and more, um, you know, the the networking and 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 um, you know, it's why we started a venture partnership so that we could find companies that that are not public. Um, you know, I think it, it's you're seeing this more and more in the private equity world. I mean, companies are either not going public or being taken out. And so it's forcing us to look at the private side of things, whether it be in venture capital or, you know, later stage. Now, later stage venture capital is kind of crossed over with private equity. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question with it's really in some ways kind of back to the old days. I mean, um, you know, the screening of databases for certain growth criteria to come up with a list of names that you can e explore. I mean, who isn't doing that now? Right. I mean, it's that's that's beat to death. So you really have to be willing to kind of uh, keep your ear to the ground, um, make sure that you've got a network of people that are, um, you know, that you're able to. Uh, you know, go to for you know ideas and what have you that 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 maybe are not as well founded or well well understood or or known. Um, it's one of the reasons why, and, and probably something we haven't 
uh, talked about it all in our pre-discussions, is one of the reasons why we have found uh, great opportunities in Israel. Um, mm -hmm. Our portfolio that is uh, our, our growth portfolio, which is 47 names right now, uh, 13 of them are from Israel. Mm. Um, you know, that's yeah, that's that's really having your ear to the ground because most of those companies were never in any databases. Um, and it's where some of the best performing names that we've had over the years have come from. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that we've actually carved that particular part of our portfolio out as a separately managed uh, strategy that's Israeli only. Mm -hmm. um, those 13 companies are, are part of a kind of high concentration, high conviction portfolio that we run separately. Um, still part of the core growth strategy, but but for those that might want to focus on that, we, we do that. So there's an example of, you know, finding different places to, to find companies or going to different places to find company or companies around the world um, and, and, you know, exploit those things which are not as well known. Dude, we should have talked earlier. I literally just got back from Israel after being there for two and a half weeks. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. Amazing. I, 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 still, I still think I'm on, on Tel Aviv time, I, I, you know. <laughs> but uh, so let's explore that a little more, you know. I mean, uh, as for me personally, you know, I've, I've actually been to Israel to a various uh, innovation or excuse me, to various uh, technology conferences there. So I'm very well aware of the infrastructure there. But for those who may not know, I mean, you know why? Why is there so much uh, fast-paced innovation happening in Israel right now? That's now interesting to you to find all these new potential interesting ideas. Well, you know, Israel has a, a reasonably long history of technological innovation. I mean, most people don't know that, for example, um, <clears throat> the x86 architecture for Intel was founded in their Haifa design facility in 1974. Um, so you can make an argument that Intel is actually an Israeli company, <laughs> at least at least the part of Intel that's worked in the last you know forty years. Um, and so it, it's not it, it frankly is not that new. It just isn't that well understood. Mm. Um, Israel has had to do it by design, right? I mean, they are um, regardless of put, putting the politics aside, they they kind of uh, they live in sort of a bad neighborhood and have had to you know by necessity um, come up with in, in creative ways to defend themselves. Um, and so that has led to these great innovations, um, which you know, have then ultimately resulted in, in, in really interesting growing companies. Um, one of the, I would say one of the problems in Israel is that <clears throat> they have tended to not grow larger companies. In other words, um, their technology and innovation is so amazing that they end up getting taken out at some point by the, the I, larger, uh, you know, American brother. I literally, um, I literally brother. was, I literally was just going to say, I mean, it like all these amazing Israeli companies get taken um, ways. WhatsApp. I mean, you can, you yep. can continue, you can yep. name a full list. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't stopped us from, and it won't stop us from continuing because they keep growing new ones. Um, but again, it's another argument for why we did the venture capital. Our largest holding in our entire portfolio of companies in this firm is an Israeli company that's private. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're perfectly able and willing to go find companies that are new startups in, in Israel. And they call it the startup nation. There was a book by that uh, title by Dan Sinor yep. uh, a few years back. Um, 
and I, and I will give huge hat tip to our partner in, in some of these companies, George Gilder, who wrote the Israel test, which if, if you want a really significant uh, treatise on why Israel is what it is beyond the startup nation stuff, I would, I would highly recommend the Israel test, a book that George wrote a few years back also. Um, it's, it's just an amazing community, and you've been there so you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you walk around Haifa or um, Yachnium, uh, you know, some of these tech centers, and, and right in Tel Aviv for that matter, the buzz that you get is amazing with respect to just the oh. – you can almost feel the, the ideas flowing. I mean um, from Technion to Weizmann Institute, you know. Uh, yep. And, you know, it's funny because you're in California as well, so you know the bird craze and the scooters. I mean I've, there's more of the scooters there right now than there are even yeah. – I'm in L.A., so even in Santa Monica. I mean it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. 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 No, it, it is an amazing place. So – you know, that's the answer to your question of how do you find things. You you, you go in, in places that maybe people aren't thinking about. Now, it's it certainly is not undiscovered now. I mean, you know, sure. the world is is aware, and yet we're still amazed at how many people still you know kind of don't really uh, you know understand that or are not aware of it. Certainly, certainly when it comes to individual investors, I don't think they're as as turned on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a there's still a you know, great opportunity. They, they have the same problem, though, that we have here. Not enough public, public companies happening, right. um, you know, partly because they're getting taken out by, by the larger, mostly American companies. Um, but they, they're able to continue to make new ones. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, it never ceases to amaze us, whether it's in core technology or whether it's medical technology, biotechnology, whatever. The, there's, it seems like there's always something new coming out of Israel and the the symbiotic relationship between Silicon Valley um, and and further America and Israel is so significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely don't think I'm not even sure a lot of people who are you know larger institutional investors that might be in Israel really understand how important that is. I mean it's uh, the two really in many ways need each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, something that we, we expect we'll be doing for a very long time. Cool. And, uh, and for those who are listening to this and have not been to Israel, highly recommend going. It's a lot of fun. If you have any questions on it, please feel free to contact me. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. Very big fan. All right, so I'm going to do a little transition here because uh, one of the reasons I, 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 we ended up now having you on the podcast is um, you know some of your your macro commentary on what's going on in the markets mm-hmm. and and you know how, what some of the things that you've been seeing and and you know while our focus here at Planet Microcap is on microcap investing strategies and and learning different ways one can make money investing in this asset class I'd really be remiss if we didn't take into consideration what is going on in the macro universe so uh, we're recording this during the first week of September 2019 so you know from your perspective. What do you see going on or what do you see happening in the broader equities markets? Yeah, you know, I think there's this sort of prevailing, uh, I, I would say, attitude or, or, or tendency. Um, well, heck, I mean, for since the 0809 crisis, pretty much every year we've been hearing a drumbeat from what we like to call the, you know, the sort of the financial punditry that we're going into recession. You know, I mean, we're, we're we're just on the very you know cliff's edge of dropping into a recession. 
Um, and therefore, and also we're going to have a, you know, this, this, you know, deep prolonged market correction because of that. Now, I'm prefacing all of this, as you can imagine, based on what we believe to be the growth stock theory invest, of investing, um, you know, we have a saying in our shop, we don't do the market. And, and that's really true. I mean, if we're saying that we're going to own companies through multiple market and economic cycles, then then we really are focused on the business. But, the, it, you know, you can't possibly be in this business and still not and not have some thoughts and ideas with respect to the bigger macro picture. And actually, because we make it, we also kind of call that um, that theory of investing a narrative based approach. So we're building narratives around what we think are going to happen or think is going to happen um, with respect to you know, where the growth is um, in the economy and what have you. Um, and so you can't not be paying attention to the macro picture if you're going to be building narratives around what you think is is happening. That it's just our macro picture might be larger than the overall economics. It, it is larger than the overall economic cycle, but it doesn't change that you know what's happening with respect to this, the the economy does have an impact on multiple you know long term uh, you know narratives that we want to put in play or that we want to exploit. So. That being the case, we think that this kind of constant drumbeat of negativity, which uh, I think plays into the 8,000 to 4,000 problem that I mentioned, mm -hmm. in that, you know, if you go back to, I mean, the 21st century, for all practical purposes, has been, you know, it's just one crisis after another, right? I mean, we started off with, first of all, we were going to have a crisis. Y2K was going to end the world. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, the dot-com blow-up, which really, it was quite unfortunate because um, as much as the, the the formal, if you will, dot-com world needed to get burst, I mean, you know, we used to laugh back then at companies, you know, could get financed as long as they had dot-com in their name. And it was pretty much true. Um, you know, that crazy, you know, overvaluation, if you will, that happened, um, let's not forget that, that the NASDAQ was 5,300 in, in 2000 and it took what, you know, 15 years or so to get back to that point. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, I would argue that that was a good thing to have happen. The problem is, is that it took much, uh, it lumped tech telecom in general into the dot-com mess and created a veritable depression in the telecom sector, mm -hmm. um, which frankly, we're still feeling some of the ramifications of today. Um, it's, it's remarkable that telecom has been able to build out bandwidth to the extent that it has with this, what it was really been kind of a considerable lack of, of focus from the investment world that sort of, a, that didn't sort of, but abandoned it um, post 2000 dot com blow up. Then you go to 9-11 and I'm not sure that we have not really fully appreciated just how important 9-11 was to the psyche of things. Um, I think it was, it, it, you know, the horrible event that it was, I think it had significant ramifications to this whole concept of risk is a bad thing. Now, you know, dot-com certainly contributed to that, but I'm not sure that 9-11 wasn't even more responsible for that. Uh, fast forward a few more years, we get 08, 09. So, I mean, it's been one you know, crisis after the other, after the other. And you when you think that we've had, you know, a couple of 50 plus percent, almost, I guess, 60 percent from top to bottom in the S&P 500 twice in, in the first years of the 21st century, 
Um, you know, we hadn't had anything like that happen in, uh, since the early 70s. And then we had two right in a row. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, you know, really has played into the overall, you know, mentality that we're getting. We're now, uh, I call it the crisis industry. The crisis industry is out there on a 24-7 basis selling crisis. And, you know, the average investor out there, I, I think it's a huge problem getting caught up in that whole you know, mentality noise. because yeah. it's it's all it is noise it's 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 crazy and yet i think it's partly why we have the 8000 to 4000 problem which was created largely by some of the regulatory mishaps that i think have happened whether it be sarbanes oxley or regulation fd or the analyst scandal i mean we can spend a whole nother 10 podcasts talking about each <laughs> one of those but i mean there, there's there's been this overreaction um, which may be natural, you know, this tendency on the part of uh, people that want something to be done to stop this from happening again. Um, and government in its infinite wisdom answers that call with some form of regulatory, you know, action that um, I think, unfortunately, the law of unintended consequences starts kicking in. And that's how we end up with this sort of spiral. So uh, this long diatribe, what's it, what, where am I going with this is to kind of say that, you know, this idea that the market is is overvalued or, or you know, somehow in this bubble, um, I think is, is fanciful. I mean, it, if you go back to 2000 to today, it's going to come up on 20 years next year. The market has been below average in its return over that whole period of time. I don't think it's right to go back to March 9th, 2009, the bottom of the 0809 debacle, you know, 60%, I think, down on the S&P from peak to trough and say that now we've had this unbelievable bull market. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you have to take the whole century, you know, go pre-2000 before you can really make any argument about values in the market. And if you do that, you haven't had anywhere close to the kinds of returns um, that really, you know, would be considered normal in the previous 75 years before that. So, um, I think our main point with respect to the macro picture is um, you're going to just continue to hear this this constant beat of negativity. Um, unfortunately, I think it's actually become a political issue on both sides of the equation. Yeah. You know, depending on who's in power, the other side wants to argue that you know the economy is going into a mess because they did it. Um, you know, I, I just think that it's um, it's a, it's it is problematic. Perhaps it's something we can benefit from in our business because I think the noise is so great that the average person might just have so much difficulty dealing with it that, you know, it's why we have a job. Um, We've always said really what we're doing, if we're doing it right, is not that complicated. It's just tedious Mm -hmm. and time consuming and requires an extreme level of discipline. Um, The, 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 the macro environment has been so inundated with financial engineering and this idea that Wall Street wants to sell people that, you know, you really need our sophisticated algorithmic approach to investing to be able to make it today. And we think that's a crock. I mean, yeah. it's it's complete nonsense, but that's the way the world has gone. Um, it's, it's part of the reason I'd say, and this is you know, no reflection on my past employer, but um, they're because they're all the same. But it's, it's really part of the reason why I say we waited 10 years too long to do what we're doing, because that world is just inundated with that thinking. 
Right. No, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's from person to person when you ask, you know, what's your perspective on what's going on in the market, you know, cause it really, it, it has become more of a, almost a political stance. Cause you, you know, yeah. I remember talking to one of my wife's uh, family members and just saying, you know, ask, you know, what's your perspective on what you see going on in the markets in the U S and they're like, Oh, it looks like it's great. You know, markets going up. GDP is good. You know, uh, things look great. You know, and and part of you is like, okay, yeah, I could understand that argument, but at the same time, you know, there's certain things that are happening that could be seen as a manipul- manipulation to make it so that the market's better. You know, so it just it's 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 so it, it's really interesting when, especially when we're going into a 2020 election, where you know uh, a lot of things might be done in order to make it seem like the market is continuing to grow and things are are great, and then you know so. It's just, it's fascinating. I've never, I mean, look, I'm still young in this business, so I've obviously never seen anything like it before, but it's still, it's, it, I, it's tough to kind of wrap your finger around. That's why I focus on micro caps. It's a lot easier to just focus on companies performing. <laughs> well, and that's ultimately what we're saying too. So, yeah. you know, I give you a macro perspective and then I say, but I don't pay much attention to it other than to try and develop my narratives over, you know, not that cycle, but, you know, what are these big economic trends that we can build a narrative around and then go look for companies that fit that. And that's exactly how we approach things. And then we're going to own them through whatever garbage that gets thrown at us because of the nonsense that goes on on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, if you look at, I I, I tell people all the time, you know, and and you well know in California, and we're originally from the Bay Area now on the Central Coast because we didn't want to be in that craziness anymore. But, you know, I mean, real estate is such a huge piece of people's worth here in California. Um, we, we often use the real estate analogy um, as a means to try and explain what we do. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, people don't think twice about owning a piece of property through multiple market and economic cycles, right? I mean, it's like, uh, the epitome of long-term investing, and it's almost taboo. What do you mean, sell my real estate? What, what, we'll never do that. My my father and grandfather would kill me and roll around in their grave and come back and haunt me. Um, you know, we try and get people to think about investing in companies similarly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you look at private companies, you know, family-owned companies that have been in a in a family for generations, and that's by the way what T. Rowe Price was often referring to when he talked about the great fortunes that were made in the country. We're owning businesses over through multiple market and economic cycles. Well, that's what he's talking about. Um, there's no reason that the average person can't take that same approach to things and view investing in companies the same way. Again, it takes an extreme level of, of discipline, and you have to be extraordinarily tedious in watching what's going on in that company. Have to, you know, really have your, you know, your methodology for, you know, evaluating: are they are they well managed? Are they in front of a, 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 a fertile field of future future growth? Um, but at the end of the day, if you would be much more like real estate investors uh, in your investment in companies and public companies, even then you'd, I just think you'd be, a, we'd all be a lot better off. And and actually if wall street, which this is, this is asking way too much, but if wall street took more of that approach, uh, we might actually have a much more sane market environment. You know, we wouldn't have these situations that we have today where I don't think we would anyway, maybe I'm wrong, where you, you know, you come in and some silly 
uh, you know, issue has happened at a company that is likely transient in nature and the stock's down 30, 40, 50 percent, and especially in that micro cap world. Um, and, and it's happening even in larger cap names these days. It's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. So, you know, as we talked about here, you know, uh, every news outlet has been talking about recession warnings. And you've actually published a couple uh, uh, articles. I think it's called your Investment Climate Blog. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, and and uh, you discuss some of the the signs of recession warnings and and how investors can prepare for potential downturn in the markets. You know, so do you mind do you mind going through some of those main points? Well, you know, one of the things that again going back to what our theory is is we're going to own things through multiple market cycles and economic cycles, um, but you have to be focused on and, and I'm, I'm assuming obviously we're talking about individual investors here but yes. i mean heck institutional investors still have similar needs to plan True. right um so I, I think as long as you've planned properly and you've got the right funds in long-term investment as as they should be um then you just kind of ignore the ups and downs that said you know I don't think it necessarily needs to be considered a trading strategy that if you've seen a market which has had maybe you know multi-year run up and you've got new cash to invest, I kind of always like the idea of, well, you know what, maybe you don't commit all of it all at one point here. Um, maybe you can commit half of it and then keep keep powder dry for purposes of taking advantage of dips when they happen. And, you know, maybe look for, you know, what, what, would, what would drive you to invest? Maybe have a rule that, well, if I see anything more than a 10 percent drop in, in, in a position, I add to it or, or my overall portfolio, then I add to it. Um, and that combined with regularly making investment, I think if there's one thing. This is for sure geared more towards the individual investor. If there's one thing uh, in, in our dealings with, with individual investors that I think uh, I'll say, I, I don't know that I'll say we failed at, but, but people haven't necessarily listened to our suggestions on this, is not enough people make regular investment into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, people are doing things like 401ks at work and all that, but that's not enough. I mean, you need to find a way to pay yourself. And, and in paying yourself, it means funneling money into an investment account that is meant for long-term investment. And you can even use a similar approach that I just explained where half the money that you set aside gets invested and half stays available in cash for purposes of taking advantage of opportunities when they arise. Um, I think one of the things that um, you know, we, we only run, well, we run four, four strategies in addition to the, the venture fund. So it's, I guess essentially five strategies, but our core growth strategy, um, and then our income strategy, which is really an equity income strategy, just, you know, dividend paying type stuff and what have you. Um, and then those, the, the Israeli strategy that I mentioned, which is a carve out of core growth and another small cap strategy we call Aspire that's a carve out of core growth, just super high tech, high aggressive, again, high conviction, high uh, concentration portfolio. Um, so, so as you can tell, we're not, you know, we're not looking to make investments in fixed income type securities. I think there's a time and place for fixed income. Um, we don't think that they're as broadly necessary as what most people are told over their lifetime. I would actually prefer that people make investments in equities and then keep larger amounts of cash if they need comfort. Mm. Um, 
and then and then you have something available to take advantage of dips when they happen and especially given kind of the secular down we've had in interest rates now you know maybe we're living through a new period where interest rates are going to stay uh relatively low i have my doubts on that given still a fiat currency world that we live in like somewhere along the line inflation ends up rearing its head and and if you've made investments in you know 30 year bonds or 20 year bonds that could be pretty painful um i'd rather you know if the difference is you know 2 or 3% versus 0 or 1% frankly i'd actually rather take the 0 or 1% to have the liquidity available so that when the inevitable you know debacles happen in the market i can take advantage of it so that might be one sort of a, uh, approach that we would take that's maybe a little bit different than normal gotcha all right so i'm going to i'm going to now get to one of my favorite questions that i love to ask uh, i ask this to every one of my guests you know and for you <laughs> For you, Jerry, what what investing experience would you say you learned the most from in your career, and and has that affected your current investing thesis? Yeah, you know, um, I won't. I won't. Once again, I won't. Just like when you asked me originally, was there a specific event that made you go into this business? <laughs> I'm not going to say that there was a specific event, but I can say that whatever. whenever early in my career that i tried to trade the market or outguess the market it was a monstrous failure <laughs> um and i learned pretty quickly that i know i can't figure out what the market's going to do tomorrow or the next week for that matter and probably not even the next year in fact i'll argue i don't know what the market's going to do at all i do know that over time history has obviously obviously shown us that the market tends to go up but it, again that's that term market and so i what 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 lack of trading prowess did for me thankfully was teach me that i better figure out what is a good business mm-hmm. i better figure out how to find a good business because the the market value of that business takes care of itself if you've got that part right and you don't end up having to worry over time about what what's the craziness of the market going to do i i meant it when i said that in our shop we we say we don't do market we we really don't um you know it's not to say we won't reduce a position if it's overweight in our portfolio yeah we will but that's that's really yeah that's more of just kind of to stay prudent as professional investors um i think that's that's the single most important lesson that i learned over time was if you're trying to be smarter than in the market on a day-to-day basis you're going to have trouble mm-hmm. um and and I I really haven't seen I can say in 34 years I've seen any professionals that have been consistently successful with a pure trading strategy uh, at some points it, it ends up not working and sometimes at the most critical oftentimes at the most critical point I mean that's that algorithm uh, you know algorithmic approach to investing for example where they're always coming up with new algorithms and you know they tend to fail at the most critical times i mean 0809 was just a classic example of that mm-hmm. um so yeah i i think that's that that was you know i i you know coming into the business being thinking i was really smart about how to outguess the market and you know th- those mm-hmm. failures were were certainly things that drove me to taking the approach that we take today and I think it was this is the best thing I could I could have happened. 
Isn't it nice to be humbled by the market? I, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's painful sometimes. But, uh, yeah, that's why you try and we try and avoid it. We just, you know, when the craziness is happening, we're just, you know, we're talking to companies, we're talking to the CEOs and, you know, getting their perspective. And, um, and for us, from our perspective, that has helped with our interaction with clients. I mean, when, when craziness is happening out there and clients are like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Yeah, we start talking about, well, you know, we talked to the CEO of such and such yesterday and, you know, this is what he sees happening in his business or this is where they're they're going over the next few years. And, um, you know, lo and behold, that tends to add a level of comfort <laughs> and uh, it's certainly to us. And and we find that that's, you know, that's actually where our, our clients end up as well. Cool. So then what, what advice do you have for, for new investors that are looking at uh, investing in equities? Uh, definitely exactly what I had said before. You have to make regular contributions into the market. Um, you know, one of the things that we're probably most proud of is that we started the core growth strategy in the form of a fund because we wanted to be able to, uh, you know, the, the realities of separately managed accounts are that you have to take larger account sizes. It just doesn't make economic sense for us to be managing a, you know, a $10,000 account in a separately managed strategy. It doesn't work. Um, but I always had a problem with that from sort of a, just a philosophical and societal standpoint. I wanted to be able to say, you know what, if that guy out there wants to put $1,000 into an investment and be able to put 100 bucks a quarter in, I want to make sure that I can help him manage his money. Um, and, and what's most important for that guy is to continue putting regular amounts of money in over time. If, if the younger you are, if you start doing that early, and make it a habit. Like I said earlier, give yourself your, you pay yourself, you know, send yourself an invoice. <laughs> um, the, and it probably should be about 15% of your gross. If, if you can't figure out a way to put 15% of your gross away, you're spending too much money. That should be a sign. And I'm not talking about 401k. I'm talking about over and above 401k. I don't care, you know, care what you have. I mean, you see so many people out there spending how much every month on you know, they're, they're smartphones, right? I mean, if you can put that kind of money in a smartphone, don't tell me you can't put money into your investment account. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that's the advice I would give is and, and be kind of ruthless about it. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't have any I don't have any sympathy for people that don't take that yeah. <laughs> advice. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I feel like I'm ahead of the curve right now. I mean, I'm, I'm very prudent. Good. I'm always like 30%. Put that, you know. Good, you know. So, uh, oh, that's that's good to know. I'm uh, I'm I'm passing the Taylor Fergon test right now. Most uh, definitely. <laughs> so then, so Jerry, where where can my audience now go and find more information about you and uh, Taylor Fergon Capital Management? Yeah, so taylorfergon.com, T-A-Y-L-O-R-F-R-I-G-O-N.com. Um, from there, you can go to our fund website for our core growth fund. If if someone wants to to buy our fund. Um, and directly that's Taylor for gone funds with an S.com. Um, best way to, to find out about us. You can also click on the section on our website about our views and you can, you, you talk about me writing a book. I pretty much have via the blog. I think there's over 800 posts over 12 years in that blog. Um, we tend to like to write. So, um, there's, uh, we haven't, we haven't done as much now, but, uh, mostly because we've already written so much of what we want to say that there's less and less reason to write our blogs anymore. But um, yeah, you can you can get a lot of insight into how we think and 
in, in the section on our views and, and go to our blog. Great. All right. Well, with that, Jerry, thank, thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for the next uh, time we get to chat. Great. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Jerry, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast as well as Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.